Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Lord Jesus, um, sex is easier than love, just like the song says, but you haven't called us to be children of sex, but children of love. And that's the harder thing. And in fact, it's the only thing, and it's the thing that you came to breathe into us, to initiate us into the way of love, into the way of God, the life of God, the life of the divine lover. And we don't want to settle for a pale imitation or a counterfeit affection like sex. We want the full-bodied, life to the full, romance, passion, sex, love, all of those things in their context exactly as you came to give them to us, as a gift that's holy and sacred. So would you lead us into your truth tonight, Father? You know we are handling some delicate and sensitive subject matter, Father, porn and sexuality and all sorts of aberrations and what the real thing is you intended. And I pray that your spirit would be here now to protect us. Um, lead us and teach us through the very word of God as we look into scripture. Um, even protect our eyes, Lord, as we wade into some of the, the uh, cultural pollution that um, our world is pumping and spewing out at us. Um, we don't want to be suckers, Lord, taken along for a ride, but we want to be discerning people who know what time it is and know what to do. So teach us, Father, take us one step closer to the life of full freedom, of full love that Christ Jesus has given his life to bless us with. Do that in the name of your son, Jesus, and through the power of his spirit tonight. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, welcome. I'll actually ask you to pass down the Bibles. We are going to be wading into scripture tonight. We're going to be looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So if you take one of the pew Bibles, if you don't have yours with you, we'll have enough light for you to follow along. I wanted to open tonight part two of our series, Porn Again, with the song you just heard, Easier Than Love, by the band Switchfoot. It's off their uh, latest album, Nothing Is Sound. Does anyone have that? Pretty good album. I really felt like it kind of captured the feel of living in a culture that's not only sex-saturated, but considers lust, you know, the relatively quick and just painless and labor-free pursuit of pleasure, much, much easier than love. The lyrics make an astute observation about what sex has been reduced to in our, our postmodern culture, right? Sex is currency. She sells cars, she sells magazines. Addictive, bittersweet, clap your hands with a hopeless nicotine. Sex is currency. I mean, that about captures it in 21st century America. With eroticism kind of woven into the very fabric of our culture, and adultery celebrated, you know, in prime time, TV and advertises a commodity, it's virtually impossible to escape the pervasive influence of porn in our culture and in our lives. It's ironic, but sex is no longer about sex. It's about selling stuff. I went to the mall this past weekend just to do a quick informal kind of walking survey. And in addition to selling cars and selling magazines, sex is used to sell just about everything you can imagine, from shampoo to perfume to jeans, to shoes, right? I mean, it's not just the obvious things, although there are the obvious, right? Underwear is an obvious commodity that sex is used to sell, and I sometimes feel like the entire Victoria's Secret anchor store should be wrapped in a giant brown paper bag 
when I walk in there. Sex has very little to do with making love anymore. Even that phrase, doesn't it sound quaint? Last week, we admitted that porn has gone mainstream with retailers like Calvin Klein using the imagery of porn to sell everything from cologne, obsession, eternity, to blue jeans, and perhaps most disturbingly, children's undergarments. You might remember that Calvin Klein actually raised a lot of eyebrows with its use of of black and white kind of detached porn imagery in the late 90s. These are actually images from the 90s. Calvin Klein, mainstream magazines that you would have picked up in the doctor's office. And while it didn't feature full frontal nudity, the use of eroticism and increasingly younger teen-looking models posed in despondent kind of detached poses. It caused a firestorm of publicity and protest. And, and all these ads that I'm showing you on the screen have not been taken out of any dirty magazines, but out of mainstream stuff like Vogue and GQ, the mags you'd find in the waiting room of the doctor's office. But that was back in the 90s. And now it's widely accepted. What's the big deal? It's used not just to allure adults, but teens as well. I'm sad to say, you can take a look, I'm wearing a pair of Abercrombie and Fitch jeans, which is the company that produced the ANF Quarterly. Anyone ever see this, this magazine or catalog or whatever it is? It features mostly naked young men and women along with articles about sex for the teenage clientele. You ever go into Abercrombie and Fitch? That's like the next one I think should, there should be a paper bag over, you know, after I get my jeans. <laughs> Back in 2001, in the summer of 2001, actually there was like a whole firestorm. Cultural conservatives and anti-porn feminists, they called for a boycott of Abercrombie. And the head of the Concerned Christians of America said, well, the exploitation of sex in young people in Abercrombie's catalog is not only atrocious, but a psychological molestation of their teenage customers. And um, the Abercrombie and Fitch spokesman wanted to just, you know, respond in kind. And she said, well, you have to be true to your customers. And their response is overwhelmingly positive. There's nothing in it that you don't see on any public beach in Miami. It's the Norman Rockwell of 2001, wholesome images of kids having the time of their lives. Or as the ANF website says, we let the pleasure principle be our guide and filled our pages with wet and wild summer fun. The Norman Rockwell, 21st century. The pleasure principle. That's, That's how this whole thing works, right? Be true to the customer. Give them whatever they want. Give them what you know will get them to open their wallets as well as their legs. You understand how this works, right? I mean, the reasoning behind this, you don't have to be an ad exec. I mean, what what does shampoo or cologne have to do with sex and porn? It doesn't. The advertisers are simply banking their entire marketing budgets on one goal, one, one big idea, one thought, that the picture of naked flesh and erotic imagery will create one thing in your mind. Lust. Lust, lust, not just sexual lust, but lust. That lust is actually not necessarily sexual. The desire to own and consume something. And the thinking goes, if I can incite the powerful feeling of lust in the consumer, sexual lust for the woman in this ad, the man in the photo, then perhaps I can get them to transfer that same lust onto the product that I've strategically placed in the picture. And so unwittingly, the customer feels, whoa, whoa, I'm looking at this ad, and I'm, I'm starting to feel the fire down below, and I end up buying beer, right? Or, or milk. Got milk? Apparently she does, and she has some for you. Mmm, <laughs> milk. The nourishing, wholesome snack of children. 
Cultural observer William F. May writes, we live in an age in which voyeurism is no longer the sideline of the solitary deviant, but rather a national pastime, fully institutionalized and naturalized in the mass media. And because our society has detached sex from its original context, the extreme, the, the, you know, we've been talking about this, the supreme expression of love and intimacy in a marriage relationship, that's what God intended. And society has detached it and used it to sell croissants. <laughs> I'm kidding, I, can't, I don't have a picture of that one, but that was one in the mall. It was either like Aubon Pan or something like that. They have these like huge lips and they're like the size of that pew. And they, and they have this croissant and it says, mmm, you know you want one. It's all like crumbling over the lips, right? It's butteredly delight. <laughs> Sex itself has become devalued. It's just another tool to manipulate and get cash. Love has morphed into lust. And most folks wonder if there's ever actually any real difference at all. <laughs> in a weird twist, American attitudes towards sex have become sexless. <laughs> the images and icons of sexuality are no longer like sacred or erotic. They actually have become secular and commonplace. You know Hugh Hefner, founder of Playboy, icon of sexual liberation. He's now a spokesman for a family-based hamburger chain in California. Hamburger pitch man. Meat man. All right, maybe that makes sense. All right. <laughs> Reality TV. Right? Records the antics of playmates at the Playboy Mansion. Maybe you've seen that. They snip about like dye jobs and sushi and where to get the best pedicures for their pet poodles. Entertainment. Nothing more than amusement, just passes the time. Porn's imagery and icons have become mainstream, accepted by most and tolerated by everyone. Henry Fairley is a British writer who wrote a brilliant meditation called The Seven Deadly Sins Today. Highly recommend this awesome book. And ruminating on lust, this idea of lust, the beckoning and indulgence of sexual desire for sales and self-gratification, he writes this. The offense of our age is not actually that it excites sex, but that it withers it. Takes away all the dewiness from it and shrivels it to a husk. Give me a sampler. I'm hungry. Chocolate, sex, whatever. <laughs> Jeans, perfume, vodka, who cares? And so into this whirlwind of sensual imagery... And innuendos constantly bombarding us, you know, on the, on the radio, at work, on the TV, the internet, in the mall, and jingles, comes like an alien, the word of God. <laughs> like this alien utterance from a distant planet that we barely recognize in our 21st century postmodern culture, Paul instructs believers, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Ephesians 5, verse 3. What do you do with that? I mean, Paul can't be serious. Or, or can, I mean, can he? Can God really be serious about sexual purity in the midst of, of this? I mean, not a hint doesn't leave like a whole lot of wiggle room here. I mean, come on, how can we escape? Jesus, have you been to the mall? It's all around us. Although pornography is the seventh largest business in America, and now it's growing, I told you last week, about $12 billion a year. You don't have to subscribe to an adult channel to uh, enjoy a flesh fest, do you? There are plenty of other options if you're hungry for an eyeful, if you're too embarrassed to go to the mall. <laughs> watch MTV, VH1, hip-hop videos. You ever, watch, you ever watch MTV with the sound off? Don't do it. 
million sites out there, home pages, webcams that promise to keep you well-fed and private. And, and that's where most of us as Christians, but among you, us, that's where we keep it. If we're Christians, we're aware of God's high calling to sexual purity, but, you know, all right. We won't, like, act out, but there's always private fantasy to harbor. Last week, some of you were surprised to learn that there's actually little difference between Christians and the non-believing world when it comes to porn. Over 50% of evangelical men are reported to have an issue with it. 42% of pastors admitting porn is a struggle for them. But maybe it's not a major issue for you tonight. Maybe you're kind of like, I don't even know why I came tonight, because this isn't an issue. <laughs> I mean, you'd never allow yourself to get to the place where it spirals out of control or it comes crashing down. I mean, you don't even look at porn. Oh, all right, all right. You might linger a little too long on some of the ads that I've shown, but all right. But you know what? I'm married and I am faithful. And maybe I drink in the shape of a coworker or a woman at the gym from time to time. But my day-to-day -day consumption of sexual imagery is, is pretty innocent. Well, almost innocent. How many of you are familiar with the Christian writer C.S. Lewis? Heard of C.S. Lewis? In his book entitled The Great Divorce, Lewis describes a young man. He tells a story of this young man who's tormented by a red lizard. And this red lizard is perched on his shoulder and it taunts and mocks him. In, in Lewis's symbolism, the lizard represents any sort of indwelling sin like lust that every human like struggles with. And in Lewis's story, an angel comes and tells this young tortured man that he can get rid of the red lizard. And a young man is like ecstatic about that prospect. He's overjoyed. He's like, I finally, I can be rid of this thing. He says, I want it. And so the angel begins to glow suddenly with a fiery heat. And the young man suddenly realizes that the angel's proposed method of extermination is not going to be entirely painless. And sure, the lizard may be killed, but what of the young man's own flesh? And so the boy says, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute, wait, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> whoa. I mean, maybe you don't have to kill it. Maybe you don't have to get rid of it entirely. In fact, maybe we should just wait for another time. But the angel says something revealing in his response to the young man. He says, in this moment are all moments. Either you want the red lizard to live, or you do not. And at that moment, the lizard seizes upon the uncertainty of the young man and begins his own campaign for survival and he whispers into the ear, he says, be careful, he can do what he says, he can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'll only be a sort of ghost, not a real man like you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it's not natural for us. I know there's no real pleasures, only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? I'll be so good. I admit, I, I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll, I'll give you nothing but really nice, sweet dreams. All sweet and fresh and almost innocent. Almost innocent. For C.S. Lewis, those two words capture the way many believers compromise and tolerate sexual sin in our lives. Stuff that is almost innocent. Certainly not out of the mainstream, <laughs> right? 
And you might be like, look, I don't want to be legalistic, you know? And God forgives me, you know, if I go too far. In fact, I I won't let it go too far this time, this time, ever again. And with such rationalizations, we allow the lizard of lust to slither right into our lives, stay there and torment and mock each of us. And we let him live. In a 2000 survey conducted by George Barna, who was a Christian researcher, he found that uh, 28%, just short of a third of all born-again Christians, said that looking at nude pictures or viewing sexually explicit activity, like an adult video, was actually morally acceptable if done in private. Hurting nobody. And in some ways, I suppose that makes sense, right? The rationalization going something like this, well, at least I'm not sleeping with my boyfriend or seducing my neighbor's wife. It's not like I'm engaging prostitutes or something totally outrageous. I'm not Charlie Sheen. So, all right, so I linger on the ads in magazines. So I enjoy watching women at the mall. What's the big deal? I'm still faithful to my wife, my marriage. And along comes Jesus, (laughs) who undoubtedly aware of the lizard's lies in his day said, I know, I know, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. I know you, you're a church person, okay. But I tell you that anyone who actually looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, nice try, lizard. But mental lust is adultery. Sex is not just a commodity. And it's not just about the genitals. (laughs) It's actually about the more sensitive of sexual organs, your heart and your mind. And with this teaching, Jesus raises the bar on sexual purity in Matthew 5, on the calling to holiness that each one of us, his disciples, is actually beckoned to. Suddenly the spotlight is no longer on just the pagan homewrecker who blatantly engages in a public affair. The light is now also searching out, ooh, the religious believer who subtly indulges in a little private pleasure, who allows his eyes to, uh, to rove and mind to wander. Mental lust, fantasy, the desire for erotic relations with anyone other than one's spouse. These are the nuggets that keep the invisible lizard of lust well fed. Hmm. Jesus teaches us that if the public act is wrong, (laughs) this is the big idea of Jesus, of the Bible, if the public act is wrong, then guess what? So is the private intention. Because both have the power to twist and distort our heart, our soul, Distorting God's gift of married sexuality, separating us from true authentic love, separating us from God himself, and visiting destruction on those who love us most. It's for this reason Jesus follows his foundational teaching with a radical instruction to his listeners in verses 29 and 30, right? What's he say? He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better you lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And In other words, Jesus says that your, your job, your job as a follower of Christ, called to sexual purity, as a child of God who is not almost innocent, but is being made holy, your job is to become an exterminator. Zero tolerance, <laughs> radical policy. The lizard is not meant to live. Do not suffer the lizard. (laughs) Rather, you, children of God, embark on a ruthless campaign of holy savagery that annihilates him. 
severing his tail. No, not his tail. That goes back. Severing him with a mortal wound. How much do you really want to experience this life to the full? A life of joy that is pure, guilt and shame free. Intimately connected with the creator of sex, the creator of your soul. We talk a lot about that here. And a lot of us would say, I'd give my right arm for that. Really? Would you give your right eye for it? Or lop off a hand? The images your eyes feast on, the hand that pleasures you in private, how bad do you want it, Jesus asked. One of the almost innocent compromises in your life, I mean, if you had to make a list, you don't have to answer out loud. <laughs> As we said, no one's participating in this whole message series. It's great. <laughs> it's quiet. <laughs> what are the almost innocent compromises if you had to make a list? Top two in your life, the hints or whispers of immorality that suggest you're kind of actually more part and parcel with our culture than you are with this alien life that kind of Jesus is calling us to. What would it be? It doesn't have to be mainstream porn, something like that. Ogling the checkout girl at King's? I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't even have to be visual porn. How about reading romance novels? Just kind of lingering over the erotic passages. Or how about an every other week online, you know, yeah, pictures and, you know, well, private release episodes. <laughs> it just kind of takes the edge off. It just takes the edge off. You know, you've got to give you some relief. You really want to give that up? Do you hear the lizard's whisper? Be careful. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? There's fear. If you were to institute a zero-tolerance policy, radically, I mean, restricting your intake of, of just sensual imagery, I mean... What would you do without TV? <laughs> what would you do without your daily hits of videos, billboards, flash, fantasy? Look, I'll be so good. Oh, this is a tough message from Tim, repentance. I've admit I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. Do you hear the whisper of the lizard? Versus the painful invitation of the angel, one seems painful, excruciating, and the other is a lot more palatable. Don't be deceived. Suffering the lizard to live is no walk in the park, at least not in the long run. In his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul was writing to a body of believers in the early church. He's encouraging them to go on, of all things, a lizard hunt. <laughs> he encourages them not to give in to lust, which, although it's easier than love, is one of the most deadly forms of indwelling sin that corrupts the inner life of a disciple of Christ. I want to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, actually. We'll go back to chapter 4 to give some context here. Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24. And I'd like to use our time tonight to understand this calling to sexual purity that God invites each of us to. In this passage, Paul not only provides, he provides very incisive commentary exposing how sensuality and porn corrupt the soul, but he points to very practical steps, actually, that we can take to exterminate the lizard of lust in our lives. To begin actually living counterculture to the smoldering world around us, okay? So I know this is somewhat painful, especially if you kind of, your life is riddled or with, with private sin or sexual sin, but you're not going to leave here, I hope, God, God willing, feeling guilty, feeling shameful. This is very practical advice. Paul's normalizing it for believers, and he's trying to set out a roadmap for you to walk. 
Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, he's writing to the Christians at Ephesus, and he says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's stop right there. This passage is remarkable for many reasons, uh, chief of them being that like a skilled surgeon, Paul's like a surgeon, he kind of dissects very incisively the deadly effects of lust and sensuality, of, of porneia, right? Which, as I told you last week, porneia, the broadest term in the Greek language for sexual indulgence. That's where it comes from. He addresses the Ephesians with language that's actually very strong, doesn't he? I mean, Paul comes across as, he, he's like a pretty strong cat. Very commanding. <laughs> and he's intentionally doing that almost to make them wince. And he says this, so I tell you this, comma, and then this phrase, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. There's a guy by the name of Brian Chapel. He's president of Covenant Theological Seminary. I'm indebted to him even for the, the whole lizard metaphor of sensuality. He notes that these are very strong words for Paul. The word insist here in the Greek is actually martyreo, which means I testify. Paul's saying, I testify in such a way that this costs me something to tell you this. Chapel notes, it's always cost a minister of the gospel to say, you must not live like the rest of the world. The apostle knows he must say it. He says, listen, if you are really in Christ, you are walking a different path. And if your life seems too much like the rest of the world, then you must recognize that all the grifts of God's grace do not annul a calling to purity. I you this. I insist on it. You must not live like everybody else. There must be something different about you. It's said with the authority of Christ Jesus. Not the apostles' words alone, but uniting his apostolic authority to the authority of Christ as our Lord. He says, you guys listen to me. You must be different. Why? Why not? With porn and sex and sensuality all around us, why wouldn't we conform to the culture? <laughs> We don't have to listen to the lizards, but we could at least just be chameleons, right? Remember? This was the same dilemma that we looked at last week faced by the Corinthian church. Those believers lived in the shadow of that temple, right, of Aphrodite, the goddess of love and sex, and had a thousand prostitutes in the temple employed as priestesses. Sex was not just ritual in the mall. It was the rite of the church. Sex with a stranger, the anonymous orgasm, it was the eroticized sacrament of Paul's day. And Paul says, no, no. Don't follow the culture. What, why must you live different? Because the Gentiles are, what's the phrase? Living in the futility of their thinking. Futility. 
revealing word Paul uses here, right, implies that they are folks believing that actually that the way they're going is actually going to lead to fulfillment. That what they're indulging in and partaking of is going to actually lead to satisfaction, to lasting happiness. And Paul says, no, no, the fact of the matter is it's futile. There's going to be no happiness there. There will be no true fulfillment. What is almost innocent is, in fact, deadly to the joy God intends for his creatures with regard to sex. And so Paul goes on to describe the way of the lizard, as it were, right? And he highlights three consequences of a steady diet of lust and sensuality. And make no doubt, these three consequences illustrate the devastating effects of a, on a porn user's mind, heart, and soul. The first one that he references is a darkened mind or distorted thinking. He says, this way of life, of indulging the flesh with private fantasies, illicit desires, inevitably results in distorted thinking. You're going to have skewed thoughts about other people. Men, you're going to have distorted views of women in particular. You're going to see them as objects to be handled and manipulated for your own private pleasure. It's going to become about what you can take from them to pleasure yourself. Paul says there's going to be a warping of the male mind towards our sisters in Christ. Women, you're not exempt. The result is skewed thinking about what you should give out, right? Maybe, that's, maybe that is my primary purpose in life. I mean, I'm looking at the ads, but, you know, to bring pleasure to men, be attractive to them, available for their gratification, right? For selling milk, I guess? I don't know. As I mentioned to you last week, research on the effects of porn on women has shown that women far more than men are likely to act out their behaviors in real life, such as having multiple partners, casual sex, or affairs. There will be a distortion that comes upon you. Porn and private lust results in skewed thinking for men, skewed thinking for women, and skewed thoughts about sexuality in general. It's like the song that Ian opened with. Lust is easier than love. Lust undermines all notions of romance and intimacy and reduces sex to a, a pretty much a bestial act about genital fulfillment. Right? Remember the Bloodhound Gang song? <laughs> Baby, you and me ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do it on the Discovery Channel. <laughs> Sex is not a spiritual activity that's meant to fulfill my spouse and bond us together, our heart, our soul, our spirit. I mean, doesn't the phrase making love, doesn't that sound quaint nowadays? How's it spoken of? Well, do they have sex? Have sex. It's simply commonplace, an empty exchange, emptied of all transcendence, all intimacy, all divine passion. Did you have a good time? Did you have sex? Eh, whatever, yawn. It's about all, all about what I can get and what gets me off. And we realized last week it moves sex from being this divine thing that's supposed to be about intimacy between two persons to intensity for one. It becomes all about my intensity, all about me having the the most intense sensory overloaded time. And now I just go back to the bed with my wife and everything's just going to be normal. She can't, she can't keep up. Porn profoundly distorts our view of sexuality. And those who live this way are darkened in their understanding, Paul says. They've lost sight of the God-ordained purpose of sex. They don't have any understanding of what's required to nurture and cultivate true love. And their understanding is limited to their most primal instincts of their bodies. They can no longer see any eternal dimension beyond themselves. They can't see or appreciate the divine beauty that Christ intended to be shared in the marriage bed. And so darkness has set in, Paul says. A veil has come down on them. An appetite for the deeds of darkness, not the light of God. That's which is pure, beautiful, noble. Uh-uh. We begin like a lizard. Where do lizards live? 
Ah, except in Arizona. They love the darkness. <laughs> and worse, we begin feeling very comfortable in it. Secondly, Paul says, poor in use leads to a hardening of the heart. That's what it says actually in verse 19 there. The ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. It's not just an unfeeling heart, but one that has become desensitized, has become calloused. The heart loses all sensitivity. Why? Because of repeated rubbing friction of something against it that's almost innocent, rubbing up against it all the time. You know how a callus forms on your hand or your foot, like, you know, like when you shovel or maybe you work out or something, right? I sometimes get calluses right here when I work out, which I'm always working out. <laughs> For those who are listening on the internet, everyone just kind of laughed like, yeah, right. Um, or when I shovel snow, I get calluses right here because the shovel goes against this, and my flesh is once, it's very soft and tender. I have nice hands. Come, check them out. <laughs> I use Dove soap. <laughs> but because of repeated friction, it actually hardens over it and becomes tough and unpenetrable. It's meant to protect me. Realize if something's going wrong, Tim, you shouldn't be shoveling like that. And it hardens over. That's it exactly, as Paul says. That's what lust, what repeated porneia, sexual sin, does to your heart. It calluses it. It hardens it. It creates a resistance to the things of God, to true beauty. Paul unpacks this for us in verse 19 in some detail. He says, having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Just, just take the phrases that Paul invokes here and consider their impact. Having lost all sensitivity, right? Desensitization. You see it all around us in the culture, right? What once was taboo or risque or shameful is now totally tolerated, even joked about, right? Paris Hilton, the rich cultural prostitute, right? She's doing a commercial now selling hamburgers for Carl's Jr. in California. And, and there are no burgers even in the ad, right? But she's in a string bikini washing a Bentley. Doesn't raise any eyebrows. It's meant to be funny. Remember Janet Jackson's wardrobe malfunction at the Super Bowl? Right? The only scandal was actually that it caused actually a peep from anybody howling. Remember the Rolling Stone cover of her back in the 90s? Remember that one? No, no one remembers that one. Only you, Tim. <laughs> only you look at dirty Rolling Stone. Uh, <laughs> we lose sensitivity. Modesty is a joke. <laughs> Flashing skin is no longer scandalous or raises eyebrows. It's just like expected. I, 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 oh, I, had, I came into a collision course of this thing. Earlier this month, I, was, I, was, I took our bike out for a ride, and we put this baby seat on the back so I can take my little girl, Chase, who's three years old, with me. And so we go biking around the neighborhood, and I cut through Drew University, which is close to our house. And, uh, and I'm coming out the back gate there, and at the end of the back gate, I almost crash. Because the end of the back gate, and just be real candid with you, okay, is this girl, and she has, she's got a t-shirt on, and she's got shorts on, but the t-shirt is rolled up as far as a t-shirt can go, and the shorts are actually rolled down, rolled over. It's almost like a plumber, you know what I mean? <laughs> and the shorts, as if like, that's not enough. In case you missed it, the letters hottie are printed against the back. And she has a sign, this big poster board, and it says, car wash today. <laughs> Okay, and she's holding this thing, and all the cars are going by are stopping, and they're like honking, eh, 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 and they're coming in to be washed clean. <laughs> the irony. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And I'm there with like my little girl Chase, and I'm like pedaling, like what? It's kind of like almost into the woods there, and I'm just like, holy smokes! I was so disoriented, literally. I was like, <laughs> Chase, like, whoa, Daddy, what's going? And it it totally disoriented me. It really did, because I couldn't stop thinking my girl is three years old, and in 15 years, that's her. This is someone's daughter. This is someone's daughter at university and has decided and been invited to peddle her body to earn four bucks for a car wash. <laughs> she learned the lesson well that's taught to every Western teenager. Sex sells. It is a commodity, nothing more. And lust is okay to incite in other people. It's fair game. There's no fight to this thing anymore. There's no more battle to be waged in our sensual culture. Most folks and family have, for all intensive purposes, surrendered. And that's what Paul says the way of the lizards is. They've what? Given themselves over to sensuality. That's actually what happens with repeated exposure to porn. To regular indulgence of lustful thoughts. You actually give up your will to fight. You just cave in. In the wording, giving themselves over, Paul suggests a forfeit. Ah, we gave up. On behalf of the individual's will. The text suggests a total inner collapse of the heart. It doesn't matter what form lust takes in your life. If it's an appetite for, you know, titling PG-13 movies like American Pie, you know, or eyeballing women from afar while you're out driving or, or just enjoying some, you know, quick drinks of, with your eyes of co-work. It doesn't matter. Paul says it begins owning you, weighing on you. It will collapse on you and you will give yourself over to it. That which you thought will bring you true happiness or sexual freedom will begin enslaving you. You won't call the shots anymore. A porn addict will tell you how they will eventually come to orchestrate their schedules, their work, their family time around porn viewing, arranging for the wife to go out with the kids so I can just get a quick hit. That's what happens when we give ourselves over to carnal desires. It owns us. The flesh is a pig, truly said. Never satisfied. Brutal dictator. It's also why a porn addict at, at rock bottom can often feel hopeless, like, you know, like a healthy adult who's gained like 300 pounds in a month and can't understand how I got there. Started out with just a candy bar. It was just like hungry, a little, little junk food for healthy appetite. But the more candy, more candy just made me actually hungrier than ever. And here I am now, 300 pounds overweight. I have no appetite for food or taste. I've lost my sensuousness, which is good, by the way. This is different. There's sensuousness, sensuality. You know the difference? Sensuousness, which Christians are called to, is an appreciation for beauty, for taste, things that awaken the senses. No, I've given myself over to sensuality, a base hunger for the lewd and illicit that will never, ever satisfy. See what Paul's getting at? He's dissecting this thing. To finish his thought here, Paul says that the surrender and eventual collapse in the sensuality leads to an indulgence in every kind of impurity. What started out as almost innocent indulgence. A um, few peaks at, you know, I don't know, maybe male-female sex. That's how porn starts, right? Morphs into a desire for greater and greater variations and perversity. Henry Fairley describes it this way. He says, since lust will not take the time or trouble to explore or develop any relationship to the full, none can satisfy it. It will whip itself to try anything that will revive its jaded feelings. It is tired of fellatio. Then it will try its hand at a little sodomy. Weary of only one partner, it will advance to group sex. 
Unsure at last of its own sexuality, it will have recourse to bisexuality. And once wearied and bored by the flesh, it will call for chains and leather jackets. Who knows when, abandoning the last shred of its humanity, it will turn to bestiality. See the progression? Next week at the retreat, as we screen the film Missionary Positions, the two of the pastors who are penetrating the world of pornography actually interview a, 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 a pornographer. <laughs> it's amazing. He actually looks like what you think a pornographer would look like. A uh, little caveman guy. Uh, long hair, bad teeth, just glasses like, you know, at 12 in the afternoon. And he's a guy actually making his living in the porn industry. And at one point, it was amazing. It shocked me. It blew me away. He says, you know what? Because the interviewer was asking him, well, why would you actually talk to pastors? Because these guys actually are not promoting porn. They're actually against it. Why would you threaten your livelihood that way? He says, you know what? It just, I'm just kind of upset. Because like everything has changed. The internet has changed everything. The porn business used to be like a family. We had like morals and we had limits and like we loved each other and treated each other well, but now it's about just popping whatever is the latest thing to come out. And some of it, quite honestly, is really repulsive to me. Just kind of morally offensive what we're requiring some actors to do. And then you'll see next week he describes one particular act that he's just like, I feel like quitting when they, when they want to do this, but we have to do it because it's what sells now. It's about money. Sex has nothing to do with sex or loneliness. That's the natural drift of lizard lust. Eventually broadening to indulge in what? Paul says, every kind of impurity. Leave no rocks unturned, cries a lizard, <laughs> searching for a home. There must be more. There must be something. There's something we haven't tried. Something on top of what previously got us off yesterday. And finally, Paul tells us there's insatiability, a continual lust for more. The lizard, as you all suspect, is never full. That's the trick. That's the lie. That's the illusion. Feeding the flesh seems like a natural action to take. It's, a, it's an appetite, right? Remember Paul was saying that food, uh, food for the stomach, stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. It's never satisfied. It always demands more and more and more. And this is how porn works. What got you off yesterday no longer arouses you. What caused an intense rush last month barely registers on the screen this month. To feed that rush, that high, that solo intensity always requires more and more and more. Dr. Albert Muller notes, he says, in an odd twist, hyperexposure to pornography leads actually to a lower net return on the investment, which is to say that the more pornography one sees, the more explicit the images must be in order to excite interest. Do you catch this? Catch what he's saying? A consistent diet of porn actually decreases your libido. It actually dulls your sexual appetite. A decrease in desire for normal, healthy sex with, your, with one's spouse. Crudely stated, crudely stated, you can't get it up anymore. And thus, you need this. <laughs> From a medical perspective, Dr. Muller notes about porn, medical research can document the increased flow of endorphins, not just blood to your loins, Hormones that create pleasure in the brain when sexual images are viewed. Given the law of reduced effect, this is with any drug, greater stimulation is needed to keep a constant flow of endorphins to the, to the brain's pleasure centers. Without conscious awareness of what's happening, men are drawn into a pattern of deeper and deeper sin, more and more explicit pornography, and never-ending rationalization. You see how it works? Paul is laying out for us folks, for the Christians at Ephesus, for us today, believers, followers of Jesus, an anatomy of addiction. 
in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Distorted thinking, darkened understanding leads to this hardness of heart that's marked by desensitization of the spirit, surrender or collapse of the will, indulgence of the flesh, and then insatiability of that appetite once aroused. This is what happens when you invite the lizard of lust into your life and tolerate him as a private pet. Loss of all sensitivity, give yourself over to sensuality, indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. It's like clockwork. When lust reigns, the mind goes dark, your senses become numb and cry out for more. You know why you cry out for more? Because you can't live in numbness. And you feel more alone than ever. Porn is a sin born and sustained by isolation. And that pain incites more of a desire for pleasure to mask it and we consume more and the heart grows more callous, growing even more numb. That switchfoot lyric, I thought, captures it perfectly. Sex is easier than love, is easier than life. It's easier. It's hard to face ourselves at night. Feeling alone, what have we done? What is this monster we've become? Where is my soul? Na, 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 na. Most tragically, Paul tells us that lizard lust separates us then fully from the life of God. You see that real quickly there? This verse 18. Severs that vital connection, separating us from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Verse 18. That which promised life, I feel so alive. I've looked at porn, in case you haven't guessed. You feel a rush. You feel alive. Whoa. That which feels like life actually bears death. Guilt and shame that actually make us withdraw then from the one who truly does love us. God and the one we're in a covenant relationship with. Instead of a life of joy and true freedom, we're enslaved and isolated. Intimacy with God gives way to estrangement. I, I don't know, oh man, I, I just go through the motions at church. I want to feel God. I come to liquid because I want to worship. I want to feel God. I want what the other people have, but I can't. There's something blocking it. Could it be? The lizard you've chosen to keep on the throne. Intimacy with, with other humans. Intimacy with other humans gives way to isolation. I don't know. My wife and I just kind of have something blocking us. I don't know what it is. It's a tragic picture, and the temptation here is to be overwhelmed, by the way. I see it even in your faces. I'm like, some of you are like, holy smokes, this is depressing. Okay. Don't give up hope, because that's not the intent of Paul's teaching to the Ephesians, nor is it mine to you tonight. Because Paul doesn't stop here or leave us stranded at rock bottom in his exposure of the lizard's lie. He's dissected it. Rather, he just as skillfully points us to a way out. Look at the transition that happens in Ephesians 4.20, all right? Look at this real quickly. You, however... You, wake up. I know, it's depressing. Look at the world. <laughs> you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to what? Put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Back to the story. 
Brian Chappell notes that the angel in C.S. Lewis's story actually does grasp the lizard <laughs> with fiery hands. And he begins to choke this lizard so that it actually finally dies and falls to the ground. But when it hits the ground, something remarkable happens. It springs back to, to life again. But this time not as a lizard, but as a stallion, as this beautiful, rippling, powerful, strong, graceful, beautiful horse. And the young man actually gets on, he's wincing with his shoulder, but he gets on the stallion and he rides it. And what had once ruled him is now ruled. What had been his master, now he masters. And what had ridden him his whole life, he now rides. It's C.S. Lewis's great expression that when we actually kill the indwelling sin in our life, the things that were so hard actually become good and wonderful to us. And we experience the full-bodied joy and rush of it as God intended for us. Secular surveys of sexuality in our culture actually say that monogamous, faithful marriage claim, marriages claim greater fulfillment than those who are promiscuous. <laughs> you actually talk to most single friends and say, even my promiscuous friends, it's true. They're like, man, I just, it's kind of empty. How can that be? Because God is saying that to honor him is to actually find the greatest fulfillment, the greatest riches that you were made to find. What would it be like not to live the life of lizards, but actually to ride the horses of heaven? <laughs> That's what Paul now wants to describe to you. And it's this word of hope that I offer to many of us here tonight who are struggling with lust in our everyday lives. We all do. I do, you do, she does. We're in this boat together. But we don't have to suffer the lizard aboard as a traveling companion who controls and taunts us. Paul says this, You, however, didn't come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. In other words, nurturing this like insatiable appetite for more sensuality, that's not the way you came to know Christ. It's not freedom. It's not part of Jesus' program. And it doesn't have to be a part of yours. You were taught with regard to your former way of life. I'm on verse 22, by the way. Follow along. To put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And that's the first action step to take. Folks, if you're serious about killing the lizard of lust in your life, you've got to shed your lizard skin. That's what verses 20 through 24 are about. Paul describes this as putting off the old self, the one corrupted by deceitful desire, and putting on the new self created to be like God in holiness and righteous living. And this is hard terminology. And maybe you've heard this illustrated as like, I always heard it as a kid, like putting on and taking off coats. Like, take off your old tattered coat, put on a nice new one. It's much harder than that. <laughs> but Paul is saying it's like shedding one's skin. Literally like ripping off your flesh that you're living in because it's cancerous. It's killing you. And you'd rather have your body, your soul, and your spirit destroyed. You shed your skin. You tear off the outer covering that you now recognize is toxic. Puritans had a fancy word for this. Mortification of the flesh. Killing something of yourself. And it's painful. It involves asking God's spirit to animate your mind. Be made, what does it Paul say, new in the attitude of your mind. And see all the ways that we're harboring hints and corrupt desires in our daily life. We call them out ruthlessly, Paul says. We repent of them. We reject them. We bring them before God and confess our helpless state. That actually, we're powerless to do anything to resist the power of porneia. Anything that is, short of allowing God's very own spirit to actually animate us into a new way of living. 
And that's called the putting on the new self. That's the part of the new heart that God gives us when we accept Christ as our Savior, right? When we become a new creature in Christ, we don't suddenly become like immune to sin. Sin has no hold on me anymore. Behold. No, that's, that's a lie. That's not biblical. Sin is very much a part of our experience in this life. Temptation is standard feature for us, just as it was for Jesus. The difference, Paul's saying, is that now with the Holy Spirit dwelling in your hearts through faith, you have the ability to do something you previously did not have at your disposal. The ability to not sin. To resist it. You're actually able to put off the old patterns of thinking, to honestly admit your struggle and appeal to the risen Christ for his power. You have the ability to choose riding a powerful stallion, like Lewis suggests, versus mindlessly obeying the lizard's lies. And so that's the first step towards recovery, folks. Confessing our sin, our struggle, our powerlessness, and just shedding that lizard skin. Confessing we've worn it too long. Actually referring to it as a former way of life and putting on the new one, which is a daily process, folks. Those of you in recovery and for booze, drugs, whatever it is, you know that's a daily process. It's not this once-for-all transformation, though it will be when Christ returns. Mortification of our flesh is a daily decision. It's comprised of a million choices made over and over and over again. You know, crucifixion, Jesus being crucified, crucify your flesh, that's the invitation he makes to us. That was the most painful and drawn-out form of execution in the ancient world. It took several days, probably. This process involves the second thing Paul instructs the Ephesians to do. He actually says, starve the little bugger. Starve the lizard. Look at Paul transitions. He goes to Ephesians 5. Look how he begins his teaching, right? Ephesians 5 there, verse 3. Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because they're improper for God's holy people. Not even a hint. This is what, right, Jesus was getting at with your, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, go eyeless. Hey, you're better half blind, have your whole life consumed in fire. Not even a hint. Zero tolerance. And if this seems radical... And almost hyperbolic, like it's exaggerated for effect, it's not. This is the call to holiness God places before his people. Total sexual purity of both body and brain. And the only way I know how to do this is to sever the supply lines of lust. You've got to cut off the source of food for the lizard. What are those intake places? There are really two that indicate intakes through which we feed the beast of sensuality. One, bing, the ones Jesus mentioned. Your eyes. <laughs> the eyes have it. They actually say it's the most sensitive sexual organ in a man. For sure, the eyes. Turn quickly, would you, to Job 31. This is page 851 in your pew Bible, if you're cheating. It's an amazing verse here if you want to begin this battle, battling back, actually, not just rolling over. Job 31, verse 1. It's a verse to consider that's had a strong impact on me. Especially when I was in my 20s. Job says... I made a covenant with what? My eyes. Not to look lustfully at a girl. It's an amazing verse that Job exposes about his own inner integrity. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. You know, a covenant is a sacred agreement with the, with the gateway of lust, our eyes. And it's essential to the journey for sexual purity. The eyes are really where we take in the images and icons of our culture and savor them. Many of you are familiar with the book, ever heard of the book, Every Man's Battle, by Steve Otterburn. If you haven't read it, highly recommend it to you. We've posted it kind of on the web, links to it. There are resources, by the way, on liquidchurch.com, um, porn filtering software. I think I forgot to mention that at last week's service. 
But in this book, Every Man's Battle, it provides a strategy for recovery from lust and the pursuit of purity and introduces this concept of bouncing one's eyes. That is, it says most men, whether they know it or not, have actually trained their eyes to actually seek out, in a crowded room, the most sensuous images and drink in the female form. I told you, I, you laughed, and I said I almost fell off my bike when I saw that co-ed with the car wash sign. I did. And some of you, all the women are like, you perv. All the men are like, yeah, dude, I know. <laughs> I've almost crashed my car. <laughs> men are visual creatures. Okay, I'm not going to get into the obvious wiring everyone knows about, but most of us, if we're completely honest, or at least took note of our furtive glances day to day at work, during our commute, at school, We've trained our eyes actually to ferret out and drink in any pleasureful erotic image which provides us with a quick little hit of pleasure. Happens when you're having lunch and the waitress walks by with low cut shorts. Drink it in. Lucky day. <laughs> Most of you say it. When you linger on the aforementioned ads and magazines or commercials. Whoa. Whew. Mikey, check. Getting your eyeballs all over the imagery to store it, what, for later recall? What every man's battle suggests is that you actually starve the lizard by retraining your eyes to actually bounce off any visual image that provides sexual gratification outside of your spouse. I know, it's radical. And so in practical terms, like a job, you make a covenant, like Job did, with your eyes, and on Monday morning, when your coworker with the low-cut blouse leans over to get the stapler, you actually don't drink it in this time and savor it. Your eyes actually intentionally look away. Yes, denying yourself something. Imagine it. <laughs> Wouldn't that hurt? Instead of seeing the female jogger streaked in sweat up ahead of you while driving and thinking, oh yeah, my lucky day, you actually change lanes. Because you understand that even a hint is opening the floodgates to larger corruption. It's about retraining your eyes, disciplining your intake, going on a visual diet. And it might mean actually ripping the covers off of magazines in your house. Or throwing out the lingerie ads. Personally, I told you, I can't even go into Victoria's Secret. Colleen I feel like, has like, corrupted me, too, because she's like, just come in. I'll go with you. I'll hold your hand. And I'm, and I'm, I'm like, I can't go in. I just can't even go in there with you. I can't go in there with her. Why? Because I'm in, I get all confused. I get so confused in that store. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> it is so disorienting to me, because there are all these like, women. They're all standing there, and they're holding stuff up. And it's like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to be envisioning that at all. Right. I, I can't. I can't do it. Visual diet. It's changing the channel when, when the beer or the milk commercials come on. I'm not going to let my eyes soak that in. Obviously, porn is out. That's one way to starve the lizard. Covenant with the eyes. The second way is to monitor our minds. And turn to 2 Corinthians 10.5 real quickly for that. This is one, again, a verse you might want to write down. You're going to need to use scripture in your battle if you're serious about this, taking back lost ground. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. Paul instructs the believers here. He says, take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Take captive every thought. And the language he's using is interesting. Take captive. It suggests that we commonly actually have rogue thoughts. <laughs> Do you have rogue thoughts? That sometimes run wild during the day? Unless they're checked, they threaten you with mental corruption. This is about our private thought life. How's yours? Scientists tell us men think about sex on average every day, once every, anyone? Eight seconds. You thought that was the rodeo timing. No. Every eight seconds. 
It's not hard to imagine considering the stimuli we have surrounding us, but what we do with those fleeting thoughts, if we entertain them, if we indulge, if we play them out in private fantasy, that's what makes all the difference, Paul says. Take captive every thought. It's about monitoring our rogue desires and wishes and bringing them back under the control of Christ. So, men, before going out with your girlfriends, you do actually a mental checklist of your own intentions. <laughs> you call out any desires to angle in on this woman and use her for your own gratification. You actually make a promise to Christ before you go out. You know, I'm not going to look her over all night. I'm not going to put her, us in the place of temptation and stare at her breasts when she looks away and then try to like, brush up with her when I can. Married men or women... It's about declining the little flirtations at work. You know. Especially if at home it's kind of, kind of whittling down where you derive some excitement or flirtation from someone who's not your spouse. Look, we're not going to go to the no-tell motel. We just got to, you know, come on, we just like to play around. No. I'm taking captive that thought. I'm not going to go down that road. Although my mind invites me to open myself up. What's the harm? She's cute. She's friendly. I just got to know her better. No. I take captive. I say, holy rationalization, Batman. This is a betrayal of the covenant I've made with my wife. And I reject it. I'm taking captive that rogue thought for what seems almost innocent, I know is a lizard's whisper, and I'm controlled by the spirit of God, not the reptile inside. What if you did that for a week? Starved the lizard this way. Made a covenant with your eyes. Began monitoring your thoughts. I'm big on little steps. Those of us in deep sexual bondage or habitual sin often despair because the hole seems too deep and the mountain's too big to climb. Could you do this for a week? This week, five days, we'll give you the weekend. Five days, six days till next Sunday. What if you went on our church blog this week, on liquidchurch.com, and said anonymously, well, Tim, these are the three top three hints of immorality that I'm harboring in my life. My place is a biggest struggle. Music videos, lingerie ads, the girls at the gym, uh, the covers of the tabloids, and the guy at church who seems to enjoy looking at me. I like that. And this week, I'm covenanting with God to refuse indulging them, to bounce my eyes, take my thoughts captive, and you post your note not just for accountability, but for help. So we can actually pray for you as you take one small step, strap, step to the, the kind of purity and joy that God intended for you. That's an invitation. It's a challenge too. Third category, real quick, Paul suggests this is kind of funny. I, I, I was just going to gloss over this thing, but it was too good. It was too like, oh, aha thing for me. Paul suggests we don't just monitor our eyes, our brain, but our tongue, our speech too. Look at verse 4. Would you look at this in Ephesians 5? He says, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Rob Bell, uh, actually a Wheaton classmate of mine, pastor of Mars Hill Church out in Michigan, he made an interesting note. He said the Greek word, uh, the word coarse, I always, you always see this, you've seen this verse before, right? And you're like, okay, no dirty stories, no, you know, raunchy jokes, okay. Coarse joking, it's like, oh, humorless Christian religion. No, that's not that. The Greek word for coarse here actually is eutrepo. You means easily. Trepo means to turn. So course means to turn around, to turn or to twist. And so the verse is like this. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or easily turned around joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. And the reference, you'll quickly understand, is not just to profanity. It's about using your wit and your speech to twist or turn another's words into something sexual. The double entendre, the sexual innuendo. If this comes quickly to you, if this peppers your normal conversation, Paul's saying it's evidence of the larger presence of lizard lust in your life. What comes out of the mouth, Jesus says, is a reflection of what's in the heart. We all know people like that. You all know people like that? 
You're sitting in a coffee shop, you know, it starts raining, you say something innocent like, hey, I'm going to go, uh, you know, shut the windows of my car, and your friend says, yeah, I'd like to shut her windows, <laughs> and eyes the girl at the table across from you. You have friends like that? Maybe it, maybe it describes you? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go get a refill. Yeah, I'd like to fill her mug. <laughs> it's actually kind of annoying and easy to do. You actually can turn, like, every common sentence with a subject, verb, and direct object into an entendre. I'd like to, I'd like to play her organ, flip her PowerPoint buttons. Flip through her Bible, ha <laughs> You know those comments? No, Paul says, that's part of it. That's part of lizard lust, too. There should even be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. Speech that's highly sexualized, the twisting of comments into innuendo, double entendre, is more indicative of your flesh ruling the heart than the spirit of the living God. Monitor your speech. As you know, lizards prefer darkness. And so if we're serious about killing this lizard or less, Paul tells us finally to expose the lizard to light. You can look at this real quickly in closing verses and moments of our time together here tonight. Verse 8, chapter 5. Paul says, For you were once darkness in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Find out what pleases the Lord and have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. In the natural world, you guys know, if you're a nurse, someone who's in healthcare, what's the most powerful disinfectant? Sunlight. More than any artificial chemicals or special cleansers, sunlight. The power of its warmth intensity has a purifying effect on infection bacteria. The same is true of the spiritual world. Sunlight. The exposure of infection and darkness to the light of God, to other children of light, is essential for this battle. We need to confess our sins to both God and others and come clean. Tell another brother, another sister, exactly where you're at and what you're dealing with. You can't fight this battle alone. And that's one of the lies of the enemy, that you are alone. You're the only one struggling. You're not. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be, anyone? Healed. Almost everyone who struggles with sex or porn addiction are isolated, and few have trusted brothers or sisters they can be vulnerable with. Whenever I heard that verse, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so you can be healed, I was like, I thought we were supposed to confess our sins to God. Yes. Confession of God is essential. It's primary. It's number one. But James is highlighting another complementary aspect of the healing process. Confession and accountability with another believer. Horizontal, not just vertical. Exposing our struggles to others dissolves the shame and breaks the stronghold of lust. Have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness, but expose them. Open up the dark areas of your life to God, to other Christians, so he can begin the healing process and set you free. And TC groups, maybe it's a TC group you do, or to a pastor, myself, or Glenn, or a trusted friend here. Maybe your first step is anonymous post on our blog so we can refer you for help. Bring it out into the light, Paul tells the Ephesian believers. You once were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Find out what pleases him and expose the deeds of darkness. You're not alone. And you need the support of the body of Christ. We're here for you. And it's one of the reasons we dare bring such a topic like this up in church. Not just to invoke guilt, but to come alongside you, pray for you, as James instructs us, so we can help your journey to freedom. Finally, Paul says there's the final secret to reptile extermination. It's found in the last two verses of Ephesians 5. And it's what we'll close with. Teach that lizard to love. This is a trick. It's not just about fleeing something about learning how to do something else. Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2. Be imi- Let's read it together. Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2. Ready? Be 
Imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's, it's not enough, Paul says, to just starve the lizard. Sexual purity isn't about cutting off your sexuality. Rather, it's exposing lust as an imposter, a counterfeit affection, and in its place, learning to truly love another human being as you were designed to, with self-giving love, not grati- self-gratifying, the love of Christ. Our world has hijacked love and replaced it with lust, and it's our job, Paul teaches, to claim it back and expose the empty promises of bondage and lust, and in its place, give ourselves fully, wantonly, to real sacrificial love. Love promiscuously. <laughs> it's funny, for men, the pursuit of sexual purity, a lot of guys assume, I've got to stay away from women. Holy smokes, after this message, I've got to stay away from women. I've <laughs> got problems with, with, with lust and, and it. Tragically, I think a lot of young men interpret it that way. I struggle with lust, so I've got to stay away from the ladies. No. The antidote to corrupt desire is not suppression of desire or extermination of it, but rechanneling and retraining of it. If you've always had relationships with women that were sexualized and pretty shallow when it comes to substance, then Paul says you have to learn how to cultivate rich, intimate, and honorable relationships with women that are self-sacrificing like your brother Jesus. You've got a lot of practice to do. You've got a lot of lost time to make up for, man. Distance from women does not ensure safety or purity. In fact, the kind of suppression often seems to increase private fantasies. The only real safety net is love, as Christian counselor Dan Allender says. Be imitators of God and live a life of love just as Christ loved us. This is called agape love, self-giving love, love for God, love for another, love that considers another better than yourself. Dan Allender writes, The brutal power of lust will not succumb to any force of the human will unless the heart is captured by the glory and tenderness of the gospel. As the good news of freedom from God's wrath increases our wonder, our laughter, our passion to live, then the dark desire to possess, to consume, and to destroy will have less power in our lives. The pursuit of holiness will become far more than a desire to do right, but a desire or a lust for the character and beauty of God. As you know, as I close, in the Greek, the word lust is actually a neutral word. It's not negative. It simply indicates desire. Strong, throbbing desire. And that desire could be illicit, (laughs) but it can also be legitimate and godly. And so Paul urges the Ephesians, lust for the character and beauty of God of your brother Jesus, of the crucified Christ who loved others, you loved you with such purity and freedom and totality that he sacrificed his own flesh to be intimate with you, to fill your loneliness forever. Open your hearts that way. That's the flip side of mortification if left. Vivification, bringing the heart alive to love, making choices that take us down the path to true beauty and righteousness as God intended. Brian Chappell says, no doubt, that's why C.S. Lewis chooses that stirring image of a stallion to end with. That the young man can finally ride with a sense of power, freedom, joy, and fulfillment. It's that exhilarating experience, folks, of holiness and purity. That's the reward God created us to enjoy. We talk a lot about grace here at Liquid, folks. Grace, the freedom of the gospel, it's not freedom to live like the world. It's the freedom to live in counterculture opposition to it. And actually experience, get in on 
the great beauty of authentic love that God has showered on you and designed you to lavish on others. Be imitators of Christ, Paul urges us. Nail that lizard to a cross and train that monster to love so that you may one day be free to lust or strongly desire that which you were made for, godliness. As Allender reminds us, godly lust leads to life. In that way, in that sense, go and lust well. In this moment are all moments. You either want that lizard to live or exterminate him forever. Let's pray together.